everybody, I'm Heather Ward, SCA's Senior Manager of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is part of our SCA lecture series dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at SCA's Specialty Coffee Expo and World Coffee events. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. It's finally Expo Week. We thought we'd release a super interesting lecture from our 2018 series to inspire and excite you as you make your way to Boston. Still not sure what to do with your time at Expo? See the full schedule of events, workshops, lectures, and parties at coffeeexpo.org. Join us today for an exciting panel made up of microbiologists working to develop strains of yeast specifically designed for coffee fermentation and leading coffee producers. In this discussion, they deep dive into the ongoing research in coffee processing using selected cultures and the analog between scaling microbiological technology in the traditional words of wine and coffee. This panel discussion recounts the experiences of panelists Aida Battelle, Rachel Peterson, and Tim Hill in France in October 2017, when they spent a week exploring yeast selection, production, and characterization in an effort to improve global knowledge on the organism and also get alignment with the application in coffee, such as timing, preparation, sensory demands, waste streams. And, although you aren't able to join through this medium, this session also included a tasting of chocolates, a control sample, and two samples inoculated with different yeast strains to prove that yeast can bolster taste. Please join us in welcoming today's panel, Aida Battelle of Everest SA, Timothy Hill of Counterculture Coffee, Rachel Peterson of Hacienda La Esmeralda, Benoit Bertrand of Sirad, Laurent Berthois of La Limande, and Zachary Scott of Scott Labs, Inc. Also, I'll be jumping in throughout the podcast to help you follow along. We'll let the moderator, Barista Magazine's Sarah Allen, take it from here. Good morning. Um, We've got a lot to cover in a short time, so I'd like to jump right in. I'm going to start with a story, our story, uh, the one shared by the people seated on this stage. Ours is one of many stories of how yeast inoculation with coffee fermentation is being researched, developed, explored, and experimented with. Many of you have already heard of this practice. Producers around the world are playing with the technique, which enters the processing system the processing system at the fermentation stage. And where a few years ago there were only a handful of roasters playing with the application, now there are more, many of whom are working directly with producers at their trials. The story of the people on this stage is one of many. What we will talk about today isn't meant to be the one and final way to understand and use yeast, but it's a pretty extraordinary window into which to view the most current practices and findings. In October of 2017, our group embarked on a trip around various wine-growing regions in France for myriad reasons. And yes, we did drink wine. Um, But we did so in an effort to learn something. A carefully chosen group of coffee producers, which is Rachel and Ada, and one of the world's leading coffee quality directors on the roasting side, Tim Hill, joined microbiologists, yeast mongers, wine consultants, and viticulturists for five days of education. 
The learning opportunities of the trip extended to all involved. The coffee professionals studied the potential of yeast applications, and the microbiology team extrapolated what the coffee industry needs from coffee-specific strains of yeast in order for them to be adopted as viable and usable, useful processing tools. When the trip concluded, no one had arrived at any hard and fast conclusions. We left with more questions than answers, but that's a good thing. Yeast inoculation in coffee fer fermentation is in its infancy, truly. That's part of why it's so fascinating to track how development and results of practices and strains are unfolding. This session will continue now as a panel discussion, but before I have the presenters introduce themselves, I'd like to tell you a little bit about your chocolate samples. Um, as you may or may not be aware, countless foodstuffs are fermented and chocolate is one of them. The microbiologists at Lalamond, which is a global leader in the development and production of yeast and where we visited in Toulouse, France, has worked for years with various strains of yeast developed specifically for chocolate. You have a control sample and actually I'd like Laurent to tell you a little of the chocolate because he made the chocolate. So can you give them a little information? Okay, so... The, the three samples that you have, uh, the A is the control, uh, the B it's one yeast, and the C another one. So the chocolate was made, um, the fermentation was made in Peru, in Tingo Maria, in a small co-op. And I've made the chocolate in Toulouse like two weeks ago. That's it. Okay. Um, um, now I'm going to ask our panelists to introduce themselves briefly. Please tell them uh, your expertise and also a little bit about your personal experience with yeast. Hello, my name is Ada Batley. I'm a coffee producer from El Salvador, fifth generation, and we've been um, experimenting with yeast for four years now. So, Laurent Berthiaud. Um I'm French. I'm working for L'Allemand, and I'm in charge of uh, the technical support for coffee and cocoa producer about fermentation, so using yeast. My name's Timothy Hill. I'm the director of coffee at Counterculture, and Aida just lied. We've been experimenting with yeast for six years. Uh, started in a, you know, kind of starting in a bucket, you know, before before I think anyone was really doing anything, but just kind of trying to figure out what what it is. I'm Rachel Peterson. I'm a coffee producer from Panama, and we, from Hacienda La Esmeralda in Panama, we've been, we did a little bit with yeast last year, but this is our first year to do more experiments with yeast. I am Benoit Bertrand from CIRAD, working on, a, I'm head of a research unit working on breeding disease on coffee. And I, am no, I have a small experience in uh, yeast, but some people are working with me have worked on uh, the yeast. And I'm Zachary Scott from Scott Laboratories. Uh, our company uh, has been working in the wine industry in uh, the U.S. Uh, for quite a long time, uh, since 1934, uh, where we inherited the yeast library from UC Berkeley. Uh, so we've been with yeast for a long time, and uh, the industry uh, really invited us to start experimenting with them uh, in coffee uh, back, for, I think the first one was in 2012, uh, and we've really just been learning and getting feedback and trying to relate that with our partners at Lalamond and uh, keep learning from the industry as to what they, they need to happen. Thank you. Um, I, I'm going to 
start the discussion with some questions for our panelists. There will be time at the end for Q&A as well. Um, so th we're going to start simple here, and this one's for Tim and Rachel and Ada. Um, so just some general thoughts on what your primary sensory goals are in the coffee that you produce and or buy, and how does processing method impact your coffee sensory and how have you found processing with yeast to impact sensory? So we can, that's a two-part. Speaking now is Timothy Hill. I guess I'll start. Um, I, I mean, one thing that I, I've thought of over the years is um, unless we're scoring a coffee 100 points, no coffee is absolutely perfect. There's always something to manipulate, to change, to figure out what you want to get more out of that. And, you know, that's kind of where yeast has come, come in to, to play a little bit is, you know, if a coffee is a little bit vegetal, can you clean that up? Can you sweeten that up? Can you incorporate more fruit? Can you ferment longer without having over-fermented flavors? Uh, how much of that can you can control? Um, so to me, it's looking at what you want to achieve out of a coffee, where its highlights are, where its benefits are, and how you, yeah, how you can manipulate that through processing, roasting, et cetera. Speaking now is Aida Battelle. Um, for me, as a coffee producer, you know, we're always looking to see what we can do, how we can improve. Um, and this trip to France, and even before then, I'd heard about yeast in general and knew the potential it had um, in other industries. And we wanted to see what and how it would change profile for us. Speaking now is Rachel Peterson. Um, we wanted to see, uh, we wanted to experiment with different varieties and different elevation of coffee to see what yeast did to the cup profile on a 1,100-meter katoai, on a 1,400-meter katoai, on a 1,600-meter geisha, on an 1,800-meter geisha, and um, how it affected just every part of the sensory, like uh, the acidity, the mouthfeel, and if it polished out um, things that we didn't like or if it enhanced things that we liked. So it was mostly an experiment to see if it was something that would be viable um, in a larger... Uh, we, we did very small experiments. So it was something to see if it would work for larger quantities eventually. And um, so we did different experiments on that type of thing just to see how it affected the different varieties and, the, and what it did at different elevations. Great. Great. So starting from that point, um, and this is, and the rest of the questions are for everyone, just jump in when you've got something to say. How much exploration has been done in yeast to distinguish different characteristics of similar coffees? Speaking now is Laurent Bertois. I've made two years of experiment now around the world, uh, maybe more than 40 different farms, different size. And what, what countries? What country? Uh, we've been in Kenya, Ethiopia, Tanzania, uh, Ivory Coast. We Kenya. sometimes say it's easier to count the countries we haven't yeah. uh, done trials. Yeah, I mean, a lot. Point, so. Even in Central America, most of them. Uh, Brazil, Asia, Laos, India. So, yeah, it's, it's quite hard to say exactly how many, but what we clearly see is that you, you, have, you have the improvement of the quality, but you have also a modification of the process. I think it's, it's also very important, and, and the consistency that, that you can bring to the coffee. Speaking now is Zach Scott. And the, the word that I continue to use is intention. 
so just as there's intention in our farming practices, there's intention in our processing practices, certainly in our roasting practices, this is a step of production that in many industries gets overlooked because we can see the tractor, we can see the plant, we can see the machines, we can see the roaster, but we can't see the microbes without looking under a microscope. Um, so we somehow skip over the fact that this is there. You mentioned that it's, uh, we're just starting in yeast inoculation. Those words were chosen perfectly because we have just started in yeast inoculation to inoculate with intention. But the yeast has been there. We just don't know what it is each time uh, or where it is or where it came from, if it's native, if it's exogenous. So I think that this whole process of intention is really where people are getting involved. And I think that echoes kind of what Tim is saying, uh, too, and Ada as well. Um, and then also just the curiosity that Rachel uh, talked about is how, what's the interplay of everything? And all that's been done, this is just a new area where people have a tool. Mm -hmm. um, Laurent, can you talk a little bit more about that intention and how you have listened to producers when you've been doing these trials? And, and Zach, you can jump in, too. It's... Um, just because, you know, yes, there is a lot of potential for changes in cup profile, but it also serves a lot of other different purposes, like potentially extending shelf life. Um, and so in your trials, uh, what, how have you worked with producers to solve for their particular problems? Mm, I, I guess most of the producers have already the same intention, is just improve quality. Mm -hmm. But we try to show them that quality is a point, consistency is another one, the process management is another one, shelf life is another one. But as Zach said, we are at the beginning of all of this information. We see the impact of the using yeast in the fermentation, but we keep working on with the CIRAD, with many research centers like the WASI in Vietnam, just to understand exactly what happened on coffee and how we can help the producer to, yeah, manage all that stuff. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's not only quality, quality is cup score. Right. It's everything. Right. I'm actually wondering at this point if maybe we could have Ada, since you've done so many experiments, just sort of like run through what it is when you're, you know, from start to finish of an experiment that you're doing with yeast. Like when Tim comes down, can you run that through? what the recipe is. Um, okay, so when, you know, someone like Tim comes down, uh, depending on which yeast we're going to use, uh, we wake it up and then add it to the fermentation yeah, tank. Uh, we add water. It has to be at least 15 degrees Celsius introduce it to it, and then wait 20 minutes, and then add it to a fermentation tank. And what's the ratio? So it's 50 grams of yeast per 100 pounds of cherry. Okay. And then what about, like, agitation? Yes. <laughs> you agitate it, and then you add it to the fermentation tank, and you let it sit, and we've gone as long as... 96 hours in a farm in Costa Rica that wanted to experiment that was uh, at 1,500 meters, and so was the mill. 
we actually extended it to 120 hours of fermentation. And could you just touch on some of the of the more sort of wild ways that you've played with it, like with the snipping and with spraying it on the tables and stuff like that? So we playing with it. We have been playing with it. Um, we had uh, Lucia Solis come down, and she's, uh, you know, she's helped in that regard as well. And we've we've sprayed it on natural coffees as they're drying. We did four applica- five applications every twelve hours. Uh, we've also done this year, which I haven't cupped yet, in underwater or yeast fermentation for natural that we extended to 18 hours. Um, God, we've done 36. I mean, we've done a lot of different processes, just trying them out. Okay. This is Zach Scott. Actually, Zach, if I can chime in, it's, uh, I think that's an important point, which is that uh, the yeast is just one of the tools. It doesn't, there's no monolithic way to use uh, yeast. Uh, If I use the analogy of whether it's beer or it's wine, every winemaker, every brewer has their own way that they make their own product uh, special. And the yeast is really, uh, it's part of that process. It's synergistic uh, to the fruit that's coming in uh, and to the process that's applied. Uh, So just by using one strain of yeast, you don't get the same result every time if these other factors are changing. Uh, so how you process it, what elevation you get it from, what uh, the variety is. And that's, uh, for example, uh, Benoit and uh, their work on cultivar development. Uh, that's very interesting to see all these new cultivars that will come online. What's the interplay? What are the precursors for aromatics uh, for all flavor development? Can you and Benoit elaborate on that a little bit? Do you want to talk about your program? Yeah. Oh. No, uh, maybe maybe before. Uh, to, to give you my point of view, uh, from an ecological point of view, the fermenting of fruits is something very natural. In the, into the wild, all the fruits finish to ferment, and this fermentation is due to natural yeast, and those natural yeasts are um, doing esters that are volatile compounds that can attract insects and the insects finish to hit the fruits to liberate the seeds. It's something very natural. So uh, what is very interesting in, uh, in studying the yeast and uh, for into the, uh, the fermentation of coffee is, uh, from a scientific point of view, <laughs> is that uh, the yeast are uh, producing some esters, and that those esters uh, at a very, very, very low uh, quantity, uh, at, for example, 10 ppm to 40 ppm, can uh, give you a different sensory profile. So the difference between uh, using yeast or not using yeast is a fabrication of... Um, some ester, but at very low concentration. And, but the modification for the, the sensory profile could be huge. Okay. You wanted to? Um, I just wanted to add something. I think it's important uh, to state that without the roasters 
supporting programs like this, it is very hard for producers to do it because there is an additional cost. Um, as, produ- as a producer, I would recommend, you know, like Rachel said and how we started, five-gallon bucket trials, um, see how you do with it. But, again, there, it's very, very important for roasters to get behind it so they can support producers in helping them experiment with it. Actually, that leads to a point that uh, one thing we discussed on our trip, which is it's because it has the potential to improve cup quality, um, it might not necessarily be a tool that an elite producer would use as much as perhaps a producer with a lower-grown farm who wants to improve their quality. Um, And when you're talking about farms that might be struggling with their cup profile, they might not be the ones who have a lot of... Uh, extra money to use on the experiments and and the yeast itself. So I think that's a really good point to make. Anyone else to talk about more of the impacts that you've seen, Tim? Yeah, I mean, one, you know, one thing I'll add in the, just like in the onset of the experience and working with yeast and what it can do is, you know, I think a lot of people come into this thinking like, I am going to use yeast and I'm going to make this incredible product. And the, you know, I've been buying coffee for a little over a decade and I've gone into a lot of experiments with that in mind. And, you know, I I went into that with yeast the very first year that Aida and I worked with yeast. Uh, You know, we're just trying out champagne yeast and all these different things. We had no idea what they would do. And most of them weren't great. Uh, Most of them were actually, you know, below the standard of uh, what we were working with in the the first place. Um, But that hasn't, you know, that didn't stop us from working and continuing to do that. And I think we're at this phase right now where we have seen coffees that are, you know, significantly better in cup profile and have changed it significantly, can bring a whole different dimension to it. But we have seen, you know, we have seen products that are below below the standard. And, you know, I think as it's good to keep in mind that as producers in the room or roasters that want to try this, that, you know, you can't use anecdotal one-time experiences as your your kind of be-all and end-all of what you're looking at. Um, because, yeah, I mean, we've seen things really incredible. This is the start. You know, there could be really amazing potential in some of the yeast, but we're also working with a very limited number right now. I mean, we have – how many how many w- wine yeast do you have for producers? About 70 for wine, coffee. and that's just what we carry on the shelf. And we have three for coffee, so it's, it's small. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's kind of where I'm coming at this from from my perspective. But I've seen really incredible coffees, not as good as they have been in the past when I've used yeast. But I've also seen coffees that have, you know, have significantly improved. And I've been able to manipulate a profile in a way that I've wanted to manipulate it. And it was intentional. If I can. And I think it's important to remember, too, that uh, what gets me really excited about the utilization of yeast in coffee is not a better score. It's a different profile. Uh, just to elaborate on that point, and a recent trial uh, that was done, a lot of replications, um, tasted by a lot of people, there was a score increase, and that's nice. What got me excited was that there was enough statistical <coughs> significance in a couple of the different flavor profiles uh, that were reported back by, I think, about 16 different cuppers um, that was well outside of the standard deviation that, for example, in this one strain, it was fruity, was the main characteristic that it was pushing. If you don't want fruity in your that cup uh, for that specific variety of coffee and that specific style, that's probably the wrong strain. 
And I think that that's what's uh, important to remember, too, is that yeast is not monolithic. Uh, you have uh, these strains that are all same species, different varieties, uh, just like uh, you know, different cultivars of coffee. But again, it's these very small phenotypical differences of production of esters or enzymatic activity that's resulting in the aromatic profile changes. So we just started on this, and uh, you know, 20 years from now, we can have a much different conversation. Um, and again, it's hopefully we have more tools to let you have the intention to arrive at the final result you want. Um, right now, we just have very, very small guideposts along the way. On that note, can you discuss, I know there are a bunch, I mean, there are, what, 40 different strains that are in trials right now. Is that about right? And, and what it's are... It's a bit th- less than that, but 20, 20 extra. 20, okay. And are, have they been, tell us uh, what the intention is of those strains. Are you developing them for specific varieties, for specific regions? No, the idea now is just that we try to focus on having different type of profile. This is... Laurent Bertois. So the three strains that we have are very different, but we try to have something like pushing more the nutty flavor or the chocolate flavor. So we try to just look at the collection that we have, and we know some of them are working more on chocolate, on nuts, on fruits, on flowers. So we just try to use them on coffee and see what happens. Mm-hmm. That's the first step. Then we're going to have another pro- project about selecting one of those 20, maybe six, and use them on six different varieties just to see if each one has a different impact regarding the variety of coffee. Mm -hmm. That's that's the idea. I mean, every every year we try to have two or three different type of investigation just to, you know, improve the number of profile that we can modulate with yeast. So how far would you think, would you say you are from releasing additional for commercial use besides those three. Ada definitely wants to know this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, as Benoit says yesterday for uh, genetics, it takes time to make investigation. So lucky we are, it's not going to be like 25 or 30 years of investigation, but I guess in two years we're going to have more. Mm-hmm. Probably during this year we're going to have more yeast too. I mean, I'm expecting the coffee right now, so I just want to cap them before you know, sending some samples to Aida or team or Rachel just to make more trials. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've talked a bunch about improvements to coffee, but uh, can you discuss if there are any defects that you've seen that it could be avoided uh, through using yeast inoculation? This is Zach Scott. Yeah, uh, I... The most common uh, types of experiments we've seen, and uh, as you've heard, we've done many at this point, uh, but most common is that the negative result is that there's not a significant difference. Uh, And I think that can be explained in a number of different ways. One of them is just if the precursors for the aromatic compounds that that yeast may be more adept at developing weren't there. Uh, So... Again, the yeast is not really making these flavors in a vacuum. They're really transmuting it from the precursors that are available on the fruit. So that's one of the more common results. So the negative aspect there is you spent money on inoculating with yeast. You didn't get a result. But even in that same situation, what we'll find is that if multiple replicates are done, 
we'll see, you know, it's you know, 82, 83, 82, 83 between control and treated, you know, one's an 83, one's an 82, vice versa. So not much difference. And then all of a sudden there's a control that's a 71. Mm-hmm. And why is it a 71? It's a 71 because there was a defect. Uh, and there was a defect that was uh, phenolic or it was, you know, whiny. Uh, so one of the benefits of, again, inoculating with intention is you know your organism. And you know the microbe uh, that is in uh, the ferment. And specifically, you now know the microbes that are not. And one of the benefits of Saccharomyces, uh, and one of the reasons why we focus on that above all other uh, types of organisms right now, uh, it's not to say we can't expand into other uh, non-Saccharomyces yeast or bacteria. Saccharomyces is very portable. (laughs) It can dry. It's easy to move around. doesn't need to be refrigerated. So it's very easy to use, uh, very easy to get through the logistical pipeline uh, that is the coffee industry, uh, borders and customs aside. Uh, But the other side is it's very good at crowding out uh, an ecosystem. So when it gets into that ferment at the rates that we've inoculated, uh, it implants fully, which is to say that it is the one that is doing the fermentation, and it basically is crowding out other organisms that could potentially spoil uh, the ferment. And that work was initially done uh, with the CRAD in Nicaragua, uh, kind of that first step that we go through each time we engage in a new process, which is, is what we're adding doing the work. And I think that that from a consistency standpoint is important. That also from a future compliance standpoint, I think is interesting too. Um, in the wine industry, we have a product that, uh, you know, no human pathogen can live in wine. Uh, it's only consumed by non-pregnant adults. Uh, so it's not exactly a high-risk product. And yet at the same time, uh, I think the same as the coffee industry, FISMA is here, the FDA is here, and they are asking us a lot of questions. And they really want to know, chain of custody, where did your food come from? Where is that? What happened to that product that's about to go into someone's body? Mm-hmm. And I think if, you know, looking at this industry, I think we're going to be able to say, it's like, you know, we bought it from somebody that made it somewhere else and it came in, but don't worry, we roasted it. We have a kill step. I think that that's not going to protect us as much as it has in the past, uh, not in wine, not in coffee, not in beer. Uh, so I think, again, knowing your process, knowing what is processing your products is important. Um, this was a question that Benoit suggested uh, that I thought was a good one. Do you think there may be differences in the fermentation process for coffee produced according to different agronomic practices? This is Benoit Bertrand. <laughs> no, I, I have no idea of uh, if there is a, if I understood well your question, if the agronomic practices can have an, an impact on the fermentation? Yeah. No, I think that uh, only the ripening of the fruit, yes, it's true. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, to harvest uh, fruit at a good stage of maturation. It is very important for the post-harvest process, and it is important also during the fermentation and during the fermentation for, with the yeast. One thing that can do the yeast is to improve the the. Uh, microbial kinetics during the fermenting, the fermentation. So you stabilize. Even when you have harvested some uh, green fruits, 
you can have a better uh, a better fermentation using yeast. This is right, but uh, is, I mean the only way where we have well, the only thing for my knowledge, between agronomic practices and uh, yeast. But before, maybe in the future, we can imagine, we can imagine to put uh, yeast uh, before harvesting on the fruits. Why not? Inoculate before. It's a crazy idea. I don't know if it is <laughs> can be used, but it could be an idea to start the fermentation before harvesting. Maybe something we can test. <laughs> Um, I'm looking at the. Oh, go for it, Tim. Uh, the agronomic practices, you know, I think there, there's potential in different things. Certainly, the fruit. Um, you know, to me, I'm also really interested in the ecologies. You know, a lot of times I've seen, you know, we talk about reducing kind of vegetal flavors in coffees and increasing body, getting more sweetness out of out of products. Um, but with yeast, we're actually in discussions about kind of reversing that. What does it mean for places that have historically had very fruited coffees, very whiny coffees that can't control that because of climate. So, you know, I think of particular areas in Guatemala. I think many people in this room have had that one region in Guatemala, maybe that one co-op that, you know, is really high in elevation. It's very cold. And, you know, their fermentation times range from 32 to 48 hours, and they can't really control that to remove the fruit. And so can yeast actually reduce that fruitiness? Uh, can you control that process a little bit more? And so I'm kind of interested in those, those places that, you know, have less control over, over their product and less control over that fermentation step. Um, I think yeast could have a really big impact in terms of, you know, the ecologies and the climate in terms of what you can do. And, you know, these places that, sure, it's a fruity coffee, you may love that fruit, but not every buyer wants that. Can you give access to... You know, farmers that maybe there's someone that avoided that coffee. Uh, you know, there's even you know there's even ideas of I don't know how far we'll take it, but you know, on the fruit was a really interesting comment about you know potato defect in Rwanda Burundi. Uh, it's thought to be a bacteria. Can you use yeast to crowd out this bacteria in the environment so that it's not inoculating the cherry? I think there's very big interesting ideas that can come from that. Mm -hmm. Speaking is Benoit Bertrand. Uh, something interesting also is that. Uh, the fruit, the coffee fruit, is uh, droop, droop. That means that uh, he is not able to ferment uh, without, if you uh, do not, um, hurt, hurt. The, cut the fruit. So there is the entrance of microorganisms. If you left the fruit uh, on, the, on the trees, the, tree, the fruit is... Um, Conservated during many many weeks, if there is a climate is not so rainy, no. So it is interesting, and in, in, uh, for me, in maybe for the future also to refrigerate uh, the f because when you harvest the coffee, the fermenting begins because there is an accumulation of yeast uh, during the harvesting. So you, you are starting the, the fermentation at this moment. So maybe it was uh, for, for what I, I, uh, I propose this crazy idea to, to put a yeast before harvesting. But the second uh, maybe idea would be to refrigerate the fruits when you want to do a very special coffee, you, to refrigerate the fruits during the transport just after the harvest, for example could be an interesting trial. 
If you can fin finance me for that, it could be. <laughs> Speaking is Zach Scott. There actually, there have been some trials that are along similar lines where we're taking non-fermentative yeast and we're using those as a bioprotectant solely uh, to allow for extended time but without actual uh, fermentation. I think uh, this is not our primary axis of, uh, of inquiry uh, because, again, we start getting into much more challenging strains in terms of logistics and being able to and more expensive strains. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that really, again, it's, it's about opening up this world of something that has been going on for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. uh, but really investigating what's going on, uh, understanding what we want our results to be, and also ultimately what the consumer results are. Um, in the wine industry or in the beer industry, you can take the same base and make it in three different styles. It's still representat representative of the base, but it has three different styles, so it would allow someone like this co-op, yes, uh, to produce a more fruity and a less fruity, so that I think it, it starts giving more uh, brand and intention to the farm and the mill step, uh, so that when they're selling their wares to the roasters. It's giving the roasters now more of a portfolio of flavors to choose from. Mm -hmm. Did you want to add to that? No, <clears throat> but um, it's not a joke. But it's, uh, for a scientific point of view, also it's very important to, to understand what is, uh, what, what um, happened uh, between the beans and the yeast. There is it's clear that the, the yeast is um, synthesized esters. But how those esters are transported into the beans? Is, is it an active transport? It is a passive transport because there are small molecules. So there is, there is a, the ground to, to, to develop a lot of uh, science and a lot of interesting uh, um, scientific uh, uh, studies and it is very exciting for scientists what happens with those experimental uh, first experimental uh, uh, trials and uh, it, what is interesting also is that this company is ready with commercial yeast so we can do that in different countries in different uh, varieties in different uh, environments because the way that they use uh, the yeast is very simple. That was uh, very difficult before, but right now it's very simple. So using those uh, yeast, we can really experiment in a lot of uh, ways with new varieties or oldest varieties in different environments. This is Laurent Bertois. Yeah, ju just to complete what just Benoit said uh, about the interaction between the liquids and the yeast and the bean, how does the esters can go into the bean or what is the migration of the component? Uh, at the CIRAD, there is a, a young student. She just started a PhD on that. So we expect that to having some information about all that stuff during these three years of PhD. And we're going to publish a lot with those results. Again, it's... Just at the beginning. <laughs> um, I think this would actually be a great point to open it up to audience questions. Um, we'll start with you. Yeah, I was just following up on 
An audience member is asking Benoit if different starting materials impact fermentation and different agronomic conditions will impact the fruit, would agronomic practices impact the fermentation? You are right. Uh, the agronomic practices and the variety can impact the composition of the fruits. For example, can impact the sucrose level and or the fatty acid composition. And we know that the sucrose and fatty acid composition are a key component for the fabrication of the esters because uh, ester is fabricated by organic acids or by a uh, fatty uh, medium uh, fatty acid uh, chain in and uh, and uh, the the yeast is uh, hidden the substrate the, the 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 mucilage of the coffee beans and to fabricate those esters so it is very important and we know that yeah, you are right uh, the farming system and all the agronomic practices has an impact on the composition of the on the bean you are right Graciano. An audience member is asking, how does temperature, for example, when you harvest at night, and pH affect yeast inoculation? Zachary Scott is answering the question. Uh, maybe I can address uh, uh, the temperature first, uh, and I'll incorporate in the, the nighttime harvesting. That shouldn't really impact what the indigenous uh, flora is coming in. It will impact the temperature. And I think that uh, because of the vigor and because of the consumption of sugars and the metabolites, um, there's a pretty broad range of uh, temperature that is acceptable uh, for the yeast. So starting at around 15 C is fine. Uh, and then I would try to keep it uh, under uh, 25 uh, C. Uh, but again, the easiest way to achieve that result is actually to start low in temperature. And then it will slowly rise over time, but not very rapidly. Um, because the the amount of sugar that's available and the vigor of the ferment is not like it is in wine or beer where there's a lot of available sugar and there's a lot of heat that's generated. Uh, and then pH, I'm, I'm not a, aware of uh, a limiting factor. Uh, on all the experiments I've done, I've never seen any impact, real impact of the pH. I can't notice it. This is Laurent Bertois. From the temperature, yes, but the pH, no. But just to complete the question about harvesting at night, I think it's it's only also a way to be sure that you, as Zach say, start at the low temperature. And as Benoit said before, that the, um, just when you start the harvesting, the fermentation starts in the cherry. So doing at night, you have low temperature, so the fermentation can't start easily. So you just a way to calm down the fermentation and start it exactly when you want. And, and probably the low temperature you have at higher altitude can explain the, bet, the, better, um, the better quality of the, of the coffee. So uh, maybe, and I think that we have never uh, <coughs> experimented this, that means that, for example, harvest uh, coffee in higher altitude and ferment the coffee at lowest altitude with low, uh, higher temperature, or uh, in comparing that with coffee harvested at high, high altitude and fermented at low temperature to see if there is a, a, a true differences in terms of cup quality. But it, it could be another study very interesting. So we can conclude really that there is, we 
These also studies are starting and pave the way really to, to other studies, scientific studies. It's uh, very exciting. An audience member is asking Zach Scott about the one strain of bacteria that outcompeted other strains and whether his work covered testing concentrations for microflora prior to inoculation and using controls such as sulfites. So, um, there's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> so I'll tackle them, but if I forget one, uh, remind me. Uh, so kind of starting on uh, the indigenous populations, uh, I'm, I was thinking about it before I got up here because uh, it would probably be good to remember the name of the study. There, there were two uh, papers that were done that uh, kind of did a nice profile of kind of what was active in a, a ferment. One was done in Africa. I believe the other one was done. It, it was in Central America. Um, but uh, they were just in the literature that, you know, we were looking at when we first started having more intention in this. Yeah, there's my word, intention, uh, in this industry. And uh, when we first started, it was some work that we did on a, a real base level uh, in Nicaragua uh, as well. Um, I think that, I mean, Lalamon's entire uh, experience, uh, my experience in yeast, has all come from isolating strains uh, from the crops that we're impacting. And I think that that's going to be a very natural uh, evolution. Uh, the difference is we have a 100-year head start in things like wine. Uh, we're just starting now because not only do we need to uh, isolate, we need to characterize. So we need to see what was actually giving that. So if you have the best fermented coffee, right, and so we show up and you're really excited because you want to see what was doing that fermentation, first we have to see if we can isolate it, which is a challenge unto itself. Uh, then once we do that, then we have to validate that it's implanting regularly. Then we need to validate that it can actually be dried and uh, can be used in other, other places. So I think that's probably, that is probably more in that 10-year scope, uh, being able to get to that point, uh, but a huge target uh, of ours as well. Um, and, you know, one where I kind of say, you know, it's, uh, coffee is not indigenous to a lot of the places where it's planted. Um, you know, the horse or the tractor is European or Asian and being used in these other places. So on a macro level, we see this transfer of tools. Um, and then on this micro level, I think the first step is we'll see a transfer of tools as well on the microbiological level from industries like wine and like brewing. <laughs> And then that will give way uh, to more study as to what the native uh, results are. And even that, for example, uh, I think in 2009, the first wine strain, to my knowledge, that was found in a vineyard in the U.S. was dried. And that's, that was, you know, 60 years after this process started happening in wine. So it's, we're not, it's not going to be 60 years. <laughs> we're, we're better now. Uh, but it's going to take time. I think I'm like two for three. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Josh. Uh, I have a follow-up question to that, I guess. Um, so you talked about uh, Saccharomyces sort of pushing out a lot of the other yeast strains. Um, could, could introducing, and maybe you sort of already answered this, but could introducing these yeast strains to 
um, environments where it's not native potentially have a negative impact on the microflora of the farm at large or potentially like push out other native yeast strains or is that not a concern? This is Benoit Bertrand. You, you know something very interesting, a study that was produced in uh, California by C.C. Davis. I do, do not remember the name of the professor, uh, a woman. She, she got uh, different strains of, on cocoa and coffee around the world, and she discovered that uh, the main yeast that, uh, the, 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 the yeast that, could, that she can isolate well, are coming really from uh, yeast, very common in, term, in terms of uh, used. The majority of the yeast uh, for the foods are coming f- from the human, and maybe uh, a thousand years ago, uh, because uh, for cooking, uh, humans are using the yeast, and uh, they use uh, all this yeast as very, very common in the, in the environment of the human. This is Zach Scott. Yes. So I think that's Ann Dudley. I think uh, yes, I, Dudley. speaking of uh, from Seattle. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, she did uh, the study. She's a yeast gen- or she's a geneticist. Um, so this was really a different goal. Uh, but she did uh, was able to track that there was Saccharomyces present on all of the coffees that she brought in from every corner of the earth. And so I, I think this is where I use like my dog analogy, where. You know, all Saccharomyces, it's all dogs, right? But you have your Chihuahuas and your German Shepherds and your Poodles and everything else in between. And so I think here it's really, you know, maybe maybe the Great Dane was a better tool in this situation uh, than the Chihuahua. Um, so it, that is getting in. Now that Great Dane is in Nicaragua. <laughs> and it will crowd out that ferment. But then it dies because it doesn't have any more sugar left. And so there will be traces of it left that's sporulated, but the challenge is that for it able to get traction again, it needs to grow up uh, into a full, let's call it a quorum of population. Uh, so the next time that there's a ferment, it really depends how much was there to start. And that's why when we inoculate and the amount that we inoculate and our recommendation and our dose it's based on making sure that we reach this magical number of population that achieves that crowding out. And so at the base level, it's going to be present, but it certainly won't necessarily be the, the you know, uh, king of the uh, microbiological pyramid. The work that you have done is on rabicas. I just want to ask whether you've done the same work on robustas, because robusta, the mucilage breakdown is very, very difficult. So that is one question. The second question that I'd like to ask is, now you worked with, for example, one strain of or one cultivar of Arabica, and you've done it at a particular altitude. Which yeast did you find the best between the red wine yeast or white wine or champagne? I don't know. So I just was wondering whether you had any particular yeast which you found to be the most effective for a particular strain of Arabica at a particular altitude. Answering the question is Laurent Bertois. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to answer about the Robusta. So um, we talk a lot about Arabica, but we work at the same time with Robusta in Vietnam and in Mexico. So we have all the data and all the experiments we've made are working on, on both of the, 
Did you the find right. that the cup profile was better with uh, the Oh, yeast? yeah, a lot more. Yes. Yeah. You found the bitterness reducing? Yeah. And the, you, the, you just balanced the body, too. So the acidity, the, did you find anything happening on the yeah, acidity? The acidity plant? is not rising a lot, but as you diminish the bitterness, ah. you can feel it better, okay. better composition. And uh, working with uh, the different types of yeast, did you find any particular So the different yeast? type of yeast, maybe Zach, but... Well, that's like you asking me to choose between my two sons, which one I love more. Yeah, but so. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you, ha- you love them for different reasons, right? Exactly, and, and that is, that's how I think of our strains. So imagine we have three strains for coffee and we have 70 for wine. But, uh, and, and I, I hate to always fall back on the wine analogy, but um, it is much more of a mature market for this application. And so typically what would happen is a winemaker would call me and he, he or she might say, I have a new Syrah or a new Sauvignon Blanc uh, that my vineyard's coming on. I've never made Syrah, Sauvignon Blanc, whatever it is. Never made it before. Which yeast should I use? And where we are in wine is that I won't say, well, choose between my 70 children. I have probably for Syrah, there will be three strains that I would probably strongly recommend, which would be related to specific types of sensory conversions for that cultivar because Syrah has very unique uh, sensory precursors. So which strains do I already know exhibit the characteristics to express those sensory profiles? I would probably give that information to the producer and recommend that they try two or three in the first year and then taste. And oftentimes, most of my clients will use one or two strains per each different type of uh, product that they're bringing in or even lot. So they'll make it with two strains, they'll split it up, they'll taste it after and they create a blend. And actually, uh, one of our clients in coffee just did that very thing. They liked two aspects about uh, the two different lots of coffee that were made with two different strains. But each one of them was a bit angular. And so they created a blend between those two to create a much more rounded uh, profile in the cup. So that's great. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. If someone wanted to do like a small sample sample trial, like of just like one pound of coffee versus a hundred, would it give an accurate representation of the hundred pound? Answering the question is Laurent Bertois. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your opinion of stainless steel versus fermenting concrete? Stainless is the perfect thing, but we know that it's quite hard and quite expensive to have it. Uh, I think that the most important is to control the environment. Uh, if you can control the, the temperature of your tank by just cover it or maintain the good temperature of your water, you're going to have a, a huge impact of your fermentation. But stillness is still the best. This is Zach Scott. I, I think that's actually a virtue uh, here too, which is the, the fact that the yeast is so effective at quantity it helps to overcome also less sanitation uh, issues. Uh, so, for example, like porous concrete uh, is very hard to clean. Uh, so that's one of the definite benefits is you can, you can defer some capital uh, by using a strong inoculum. Okay, one more quick question. Um, 
I did a small experiment a few years ago, bringing uh, an East from Japan to Colombia. Um, and many things raised, many questions raised at the time. Basically, the first thing was we find some improvement in the cupping, but I didn't feel like it was worth to try to bring a foreigner microorganism into the system that can create a contamination and a worry in the microflora around uh, our farms. So the, the question is related. What do you think about like the environmental safeness of this? And it, do, do, do there rise any kind of ethical questions to this? Should be we worry about that? Uh, I was, so I stopped doing it. I didn't find it very uh, yeah, worth to do it at the time. But we'd like to know the impression of other people. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess uh, the expression I was using, you know, the glass is already broken, uh, and not just in modern times, but already going back to uh, prehistoric times. You know, we as human, we as humans have done exactly what you said as ourselves. You know, we, we are the inoculum uh, that uh, spread across uh, the entire earth. And we brought things with us. You know, we brought dogs with us. Uh, and we brought big things that we can see. And we brought uh, plants. Um, but we also brought this microflora already. So Saccharomyces is already readily present. Bring it to modern times. And in Colombia, every day, there is yeast that is coming for bread and for beer, and that bread and beer is then moving to uh, each different town and each different city and each different water stream. Uh, so we're very connected um, as it relates to some of these organisms. And Saccharomyces, and again, one of the reasons why we focus on it, it's, it's perceived as probably one of our most allied uh, and symbiotic uh, microorganisms in the environment uh, because we've coexisted with it for so long and we've, we have knowingly and unknowingly fostered uh, its spread. Uh, so ethically, I feel okay about it. Um, I am biased. Um, uh, but, uh, but I also think that it, it's just, again, it's the same as the fact that we brought coffee uh, to Colombia uh, as well. Uh, the difference is we feel we have more control over more over larger things, and and that's a very fair uh, point too, uh, because we do have more control over larger things. This is Timothy Hill. Uh, I mean, from a, I don't know if uh, I'd be curious on their perspective, but for me, it's more about I would be more worried about the byproduct of of the actual fermentation and like what is going out from the stream, as, you know, from from that process as opposed to the yeast itself. But I don't, again, it's a, I think it's a I think it's a good question and something that I've uh, thought about as I'm doing these experiments. What am I introducing to the environment? Um, but I think controlling your waste stream and you know making sure that that is really intact is probably vastly more important than I think worrying about the yeast because it is already already there. That's my my take. Um, that will conclude our panel. Thank you all so much for coming. Phone numbers. <laughs> That was Sarah Allen, Zachary Scott, Laurent Bertois, Benoit Bertrand, Rachel Peterson, Timothy Hill, and Aida Battelle at Expo in 2018. Remember to check out our show notes for a full transcript of this lecture and visit coffeeexpo.org for tickets to this year's event. 
This has been an episode of the SCA podcast. Thank you for joining us.